Hello, you're listening to the podcast of Bay Ridge Christian Church. Each Sunday, our aim is to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ from the text of the Bible and to catalyze the hearts of our hearers to love and gratitude towards God and all of His creation. We hope you enjoy this teaching, and we pray that you will be encouraged to trust in Jesus today. We're going to be taking a break from our series, Authentic 2, and we're going to be looking this morning um, regarding sanctity of life, sanctity of human life. This is Sanctity of Life Sunday, and our text is going to be Genesis chapter 4, verses 8 to 10, and this may seem like an unusual text, but I will explain why in a couple of moments. I'm going to be speaking about our long war against God's image, our long war against God's image. So Genesis chapter 4, verses 8 to 10, they'll be up here on the screen. I'm going to be using the New International Version. So let's hear God's word together. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. And then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done. Your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. As I mentioned, this Sunday, the Sunday before January the 22nd, has been observed in many, many congregations in America as Sanctity of Life Sunday. That's because January the 22nd is the anniversary of Roe versus Wade, the horrific decision by our Supreme Court in 1973 that mandated that abortion was legal in all 50 states. There were already some where it was legal prior to that, but this overturned all the states that did not allow abortion and mandated that abortion be legal uh, basically without any restrictions through at least the first two trimesters uh, and possibly even beyond that. But it's interesting because we have another holiday that's being observed this weekend which is Martin Luther King Jr. Day. And this is because uh, Dr. King was born on January the 15th in 1929. And so this is the weekend of his observance. And I take it as a good coincidence that these two coincide so often. There are a few years where they don't coincide, but most of the time they do. And I take it as a good thing because the two issues are related. The work of Dr. King... And the work regarding life in the womb are actually one and the same. And so I want to talk this morning about why have racism and abortion been such a problem? In our country, I'm going to look at particularly, but really around the world. And what is the common root behind these sins? Because there is a sense in which as bad as racism and and slavery and lynching and all of those things are, and abortion is, they're really just the fruit of a deeper sin problem. So what is that? That's what we're going to dive in and look at this morning. Now we're going to begin by looking at this story of Cain. And I want us to see that what Cain is doing with Abel is more than murder. That may sound strange, but it could be more than murder. But we're going to see there is something deeper going on. So notice in verse 8, where we read in our text, Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. This is the first recorded murder in human history. And oddly enough, it's fratricide. It's one not killing somebody from a different clan. It is a man killing his own brother. And it's amazing as well because this is right after, when we consider biblically, this is right after the fall. God is recording for us to let us know how quick and how far the fall took us. It seemed to be a small thing in the moment, but it really was not. The fall carried us down dark paths and it did it very quickly so that the next major story is one brother killing another. But what I want us to do is to step back actually just before our text this morning. In the previous verses, we find out what the root of Cain's actions against Abel are. What is the root of his hatred and murder? And we read in Genesis 4, 4 to 7, 
that the Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. And the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. Now notice, Abel had brought an offering and Cain had brought an offering, and somehow God communicated to them that he received Abel's offering of an animal sacrifice with favor, but he did not receive Cain's sacrifice of the fruits of the ground with favor. But rather than changing his actions, Cain becomes angry. And he's angry with Abel because Abel has been approved, but he's also angry ultimately with God. And Cain has an option here. He can either repent and seek the Lord, and God says that if you do what's right, you'll receive favor. But what Cain finds it easier to do, and here, this is the way sin works in our hearts, it is always easier to strike out at someone else than it is to repent of sin in my own heart. We see it with Adam and Eve. It's easier to shift the blame than it is to repent. And in Cain's case, it is easier to remove his righteous brother than it is to repent of his own sin. And so what's happening here is Cain's warfare ultimately is not with Abel. His warfare is with God. But see, there's a problem. He can't kill God. He can't physically strike God. So what does he want to do? He finds the image of God. Because he can strike that image and he can kill that image. He can demean, he can degrade, he can destroy the image of God when he can't do it to God himself. But make no mistake, what's going on in his heart is actually a war against God. And so God comes graciously, just like he had to Adam and Eve. We see this again and again. When Adam and Eve had sinned, God comes to them and gives a question. Not because God doesn't know, but the question is an invitation to repent. It's an invitation to come clean and come back to God. And so God does this with Cain. And we read in verse 9, the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? Do not misunderstand this. This is not God saying, I've been looking around for Abel and I don't know where he's at. God knows exactly what has happened. But he says, Cain, here's your chance. Even now, after murder, you can come clean. Cain, come clean. But notice, don't miss Cain's response. Cain's response, not, hmm, I don't know. Cain's response is, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? It is sarcastic, it is vindictive, it is angry back at God. And then at that point, the Lord says, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out from the ground. Because the blood of the image bearer cannot be silenced. When an image bearer is murdered, that blood cries out to God that injustice has been done. And that's exactly what happens with Cain. And we could continue on in the story because Cain still really doesn't repent. All he does is he complains about the penalty. And he says the penalty is too much to to bear. But there's no evidence that he repented. Because see, Cain's war was ultimately not with Abel, but with the image of God. Because every time he saw the image of God, it was a reminder of who he was, and it was a reminder of his sin, and it was easier to destroy the image than to deal with his own sin. Now, I wish I could say this was the last time that that's done in the Scripture. But the reason I'm teaching this this morning is because this actually is just the beginning of a pattern that is repeated over and over and over and over again 
in Scripture. In fact, consider in Genesis chapter 4, verses 23 and 24, we read the story of a man named Lamech. And Lamech commits brazen murder. And notice what he does in verse 23. It says, Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, listen to me, wives of Lamech, hear my words. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. If Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech 77 times. Do you hear? Cain tried to hide what he had done. Lamech shines a light on what he's done. Cain is ashamed of what he's done. Lamech boasts about what he has done. Cain says the penalty is too great to bear. Lamech says, I'm going to get 11 times that. Do you hear how sin has progressed? The impulse to strike out against God through his image bearer is intensifying. It is getting worse. And make no mistake, this is in the book of Genesis. It's right there in chapter 4. We're, we're barely down in the biblical story. Now, a lot of generations have come in, in between, but there's a reason why God picks these out. Ask yourselves, the early chapters of Genesis cover thousands of years of history. When God picks these stories out, it's to teach us something. It's to show us. And what it is is, make no mistake, that, that murderous intent in Cain's heart, that trying to strike the image of God, it's growing. It's getting worse. Then we get a long chronology in chapter 5, which ends with Noah. And we come to God's description of what the world is like in the days of Noah. This is in Genesis chapter 6, verses 11 to 13. We read this. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become. For all the people on earth had corrupted their way. So God said to Noah, I'm going to put an end to all people. For the earth is filled with violence because of them. I am surely going to destroy both them and the earth. Notice what's going on here. It's not just that people, there's a little sin. The earth is full of it. And it's not even just sin. It's specifically, we're told twice, it's violence. They are violent. And who are they violent with? They're violent with the image of God. They're striking out against one another. The earth is becoming full of blood. The impulse of sin to strike out against God through his image bearer is spreading everywhere in, in humanity. God is saying, make no mistake, it's not just Cain and his descendants. Even Abel and his descendants have been infected by this now so that everyone is striking out. Rather than repenting of sin, it's easier to strike out and destroy, degrade, kill the image bearer of God. And this is repeated over and over and over again in Scripture. We read horrifying stories. We see it, for example, when we go down to Egypt and the desire to kill the image of God even extends down to a command to murder children as they are born. They can't have done anything to have caused any problem. This is no longer. See, what Cain it was God's approval of Abel with um, Lamech. It's the guy injured me somehow. Now, they haven't done anything. I want them dead. And I wish it stopped just with Egypt, but actually Israel and the promised land. Their history is full of violence and blood so that God says even truth lies bleeding in the street. And murder is among my people so greatly that they have to go into exile. The prophets cry out, not just against Israel, but against other nations. In the book of Amos, we read about uh, soldiers who are actually killing children inside the womb. And God says the blood cries out for vengeance, and judgment is going to come. And it comes all the way down to the book of Matthew, where when Herod hears that the Messiah might be coming, what's his solution? Murder the children. Do you see a pattern? over and over and over again. And Herod is not even the ultimate example of it. 
the ultimate example we're given the story of in Acts chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, where Peter, speaking to the people of Israel, says, you disown the holy and righteous one and ask that a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life. Notice Peter's indictment. I mean, man, he is bold. He is telling them God himself came. The the very image of God came to you, and what we did was we killed him. And in fact, we had a choice. Pilate, who was a wicked man, tried to talk us out of doing this, but you said, I'd rather have a murderer than the Son of God. I'll take anything over that one that reminds me of God. And Peter says, in one of the most catching phrases, you killed the author of life. Thankfully, it doesn't end there because he ends by saying, but God raised him from the dead, which gives us some hope in the midst of this tale of bloodshed that God does overrule. God does come in and say, no, you will not have the last word. Our war against God's image will not win. But notice here what this tells us, a strand that runs throughout Scripture. And you can see it continues all the way into the book of Revelation. We see this same thing where the people are there. And in fact, when, when the, the picture of Jesus coming, the people are crying out for mountains to fall on them, anything other than repent. We're told in Revelation over and over again, they refuse to repent. In our rebellion against God, humanity has consistently demeaned, degraded, and attempted to destroy other humans because they're created in God's image. That's why we do it. See, other things, you know, might, might destroy something else. We destroy ourselves because we are the greatest reminder of the image of God. So this is what the Scripture teaches. Now, what I want to do is I want to take a turn, and I'm going to look in our own history at our American war against God's image. We've seen what the Scripture shows us over and over again. I want to show that the same thing has come true in our own country, right down to our own day. And it's critical for us to see this. The reason that the Bible covers this so often is to let us know the effect of our rebellion against God has affected all cultures and all nations. It spreads everywhere. No one is exempt. And any thought that our nation would somehow be outside of this is thoroughly unbiblical. Now, let me say, there are those who today will make it as if America is the worst nation that's ever existed. Now, that's just foolishness. It's not true, okay? Our nation actually, in many ways, has been a beacon of freedom, dignity, and human rights. Places where human rights flourish today trace it back to America, the original place that kind of said, we really believe people are created. They really do have rights. They, this needs to be considered. You can't just treat humans however you would like. That idea really does flow from America, and other nations even recognize that. So the voice that would say that's not true is demonically wrong. Okay? However, sometimes a voice then comes back and wants to whitewash what America has done. But I want to remind you, we have a dark streak where our rebellion has been attacking the image of God from our very founding. From our very founding. And I'm going to look at two sins that go along with the two days. Our primal sin of racism, prejudice, and slavery. And then our sin that is expressing it most horribly today, which is abortion. Now, slavery is oftentimes spoken of as America's original sin. In other words, the way we take our venting on like Cain did on Abel has very often been racially based. And it is absolutely horrific. If you have never visited the Museum of African American History in the Smithsonian, I would encourage you to do so. But it's not a cheery, fun trip. Okay? 
There, there's an immense story to be told there. Slavery was horrible. It lasted over 250 years. We enslaved, degraded, and killed millions of Africans. The passage from Africa across to the Americas is one of the most degrading uh, stories in the annals of human history. I mean, and that's saying something because we have some degrading stories in our history. But what I want to get at is just like Cain's murder of Abel was not even the worst part of it. It was his image, his bloodlust for the image of God. And we have the same thing. There was a bloodlust that ran here. Now, why do I say that? Because if you read what happened, the problem came in in Christian nations. Christian nations had, even though this was wrong, allowed slavery of non-Christians. So if we fought Muslims and you captured them, you could own them as slaves. But we weren't supposed to be enslaving one another. Well, what happens when Africans convert? This is not a surmising. This is actually encoded in law. And what we said is, they're not human. They don't have the same rights. They're a different race. And the idea of race, make no mistake, is to say they're not like us. They're not just a different skin color, a different ethnicity. They're a different race. We're the human race. They're something else. Because just like Cain, we can repent, but that's too hard. There's a cost. And so we demean and we degrade and we deny the very humanity of our brother because we will not be our brother's keeper. And so deep is the sin here, and this is to our shame. Again, I I love our country, okay? Came up to the Naval Academy when I was 17, served in the Marine Corps, rather patriotic organization if you've never run into any of them. But make no mistake, When almost all the rest of the world had outlawed slavery, it was humming right along here. We kept going to when other nations were saying, what are you all doing? Everybody stop doing this. And we were like, not us. Because it was so ingrained, rather than repent, we'll let 500,000 Americans die in a bloody war. Because we're not going to give up our sin. And after the Civil War, the same thing continues. It doesn't, it, we, we don't repent even then. It just comes out in a different name called Jim Crow. And we will continue to demean and degrade and deny the humanity of our brother. It was our own system of apartheid. And let me tell you, it actually got worse as you moved along. You were better off being an African American in 1880 than you were in 1950. If you read the stories, it was getting worse and worse. It was like Herod's slaughter of the infants. When the situation starts to come and change is being forced upon us, we don't pull back, we ramp up our sin. Just like the Nazis did, they didn't shut down the concentration camps as they were losing the war. They put more resources towards them. It's an insane way we act to kill the image of God. But that's because that's what's actually driving the other things. So this lasts all the way until Dr. King comes on the scene in the 1950s. And he's raised up to lead the fight for justice and equal treatment. And thanks be to God, there was an effect that in the 1960s, Jim Crow was outlawed. And at least on the books, on the law, there became equality. But make no mistake, seeds of sin that are sown for hundreds of years don't die quickly and easily. I mean, how much easier was it for Cain to say, oh, how would you like me to do the offering different? 
That's choice A. Choice B is I'll murder my brother. But which one do we bend towards? The insane choice. So, thankfully, there's been great improvement, but there's still ways to go. But I want you to notice, five years, less than five years after Dr. King is murdered, assassinated for his work, we legalize abortion within five years. Make no mistake, the same bloodlust that had caused the slavery and the lynchings is now just redirected. And like in Egypt, and like with Herod, who's the easiest person to direct our bloodlust against? The unborn. They're defenseless. But amazingly enough, they also can't possibly have done anything to us. But since 1973, there have been 50 million abortions. Now let that sink in. Who thinks we paid a big price in World War II? Anybody think we paid a big price in lives? That's less than six months of what we do every single year in abortions. 50 million have been put to death since 1973. And all that is doing is reenacting Cain's murder of Abel, is fulfilling our rebellious desire to attack the image of God. And let me point out, and this is important for us to understand, the modern abortion movement is strongly linked with the eugenic movement of the early 20th century, which said that we need to reduce or wipe out the other races. Okay, and the eugenic movement came out of white, northern European, and American culture. There's no other way to look at it. That's what we believed and what we did. And it was directly, we did not want people with black skin or brown skin to be reproducing. And that continues to this day so that out of the million abortions that will happen this year, 300,000 will be African Americans. There is a bloodlust still to kill people with black skin. And it is far worse than any kind of thing that will go on with police violence or anything else. All of those pale in comparison. The history of our lynching is horrific and doesn't add up to a week's worth of abortions. There is a bloodlust to kill. It dwarfs the numbers that died under slavery and Jim Crow. And it's done every single year. Approximately 25% of pregnancies in this country this year will end in abortion. 25%. The worldwide annual abortion count is estimated to be 40 to 50 million. That means everybody that died in World War II, and this includes all of Stalin's purges and killing everybody else, in two years, we match it. Think of the horror of World War II. And that was stretching out. Those numbers are stretching out over 10 or 12 years. In two years, we match it. And it just keeps rolling. This is the most comprehensive, sustained, and systematic attack on the image of God in human history. The same thing that motivated Cain motivates us, but we've brought technology in. That's what we've done. So in many ways, this is the culmination of our long war against the image of God. Slaughtering unborn children for the affront of existence. Now, what does this mean for us? And I want to remind us, because we're going to come to the Lord's table at the end of this. I, I want to speak. 
if you've been involved in either of these sins, hold on, because there is forgiveness for us. But forgiveness does not come following the way it came. Forgiveness comes by coming clean when we own up to what we've done. So I want to ask us a couple of questions before we come to the Lord's table. Number one, do I recognize this long war against God's image? I'm not asking specifically just about racism and abortion. I'm asking, do we recognize there's something that lies behind those? Humans have been attacking God's image since Cain killed Abel. See, this is what sin does. Sin rebels against God. But it can't strike God directly, so it looks for the next best thing, which is the image of God. It has occurred in every epoch and every culture. And the crazy thing is, even though America's been used mightily, more than any other nation in human history, to increase human rights around the world, at the same time, we have from our very founding been engaged in a war against God's image bearers. Any philosophy that wants to make it all one way or another, you you should worry about right from the beginning. Because there's always indwelling sin. The story is always both sides. And very often it's like where it's the, the, the highest heights are the lowest lows. And that's the way we've been as a culture. And I want to speak to us this morning because you may be wondering and saying one of two things. Why are you bothering to say this to me? I don't want to do either one of these. Or why are you saying this to the church? You should be out there preaching this to those unbelievers. Sadly, the church has been complicit in this. Many evangelical Christians tried to biblically justify slavery and Jim Crow. You can find the volumes that are written where they tried to come out, you know, in Genesis chapter 9, the curse of Ham, and all these crazy ways of trying to biblically justify what we were doing. And I wish that had stopped and we can say, well, once the Civil War came, we all woke up. It did not. The evangelical church was AWOL. Dr. King was specifically asking for our help. Of course, Dr. King had tried to go to one of our seminaries and was not allowed to because his skin was the wrong color. And if you are thinking, well, those weren't real Christians, Wake up. We read their theology books. You like some of the things they've said. They were real Christians. They were really deceived. Sin was really dwelling. And they were not listening to the Spirit of God. We were even late entering into the fight against abortion. I mean, when this happened in 1973, evangelicals suddenly came on and the Catholics were like, where have you guys been? We've been fighting this for a long time. Where were you? The answer was we were asleep. So being a Christian does not mean I'm automatically exempt from this sin at all. does not mean I don't need to examine my own heart. The temptation to follow the culture and our sin nature, to demean, degrade, or even destroy those who are different, who are powerless, who are inconvenient, will always be with us. And we must actively wage war against it in our own hearts. Don't think the sin of Cain can't be ours. Because, friends, look what God's people did. I remind you, John tells us that Jesus came to that which was his own, and they did not receive him. The prophets were read every week. They had every reason to believe. And and even, it it amazes me, I'm uh, reading through the book of Acts right now in the Greek New Testament, and I'm reading through it yesterday where Peter and John in Acts 3 have healed the beggar at the temple, and the guys call them in. And Peter preaches the gospel to the Sanhedrin, and they go off and they say, what are we going to do? We can't deny they clearly did this miracle. This lame man is now walking around. We all know it's true. What are we going to do about it? You know what doesn't enter their mind? Repent. That's not on the table. What are we going to do? So we're going to tell them, stop preaching in this name. How insane is that? 
But the point of that story is not, wow, there are other people that way. Do I fall into the same thing? Second question, am I authentically pro-life? Am I authentically pro-life? Now, let me say this, and this may be surprising given everything I've just stated, but I want us to understand this. No one, no one tries to demean, degrade, or destroy all of God's image bearers. Nobody's ever done that. We're selective, okay? You can see pictures of Adolf Hitler playing with kids, loving them. There were people Hitler cared for. And then there were people he tried to kill. You can, you can see pictures and read back. The people who owned slaves weren't universally horrible to everyone. We're selective in how we do this. Some people even champion protecting one group of image bearers and then breathe out with bloodlust to kill another group of image bearers. In our own history, let's go back to America, all men are created equal. And some are more equal than others. All men are created equal unless you're black. And then we'll deny your humanity and you can be owned as a slave. The very man who wrote those words owned a slave. And in fact, we now know from DNA evidence he fathered many children through one of those slaves. Today, black lives matter unless they're in the womb. Kill them. Same people say one, do the other. And it's hypocritical. But it's what we do, friends. So, Am I authentically pro-life? Do I recognize, affirm, and uphold in action the life of the unborn? Every human, from the moment of conception, is the image of God. I've taught on this before. You can look it up. We've got it in the discussion guide this week, some previous teachings. We need to understand, from the second of conception... Every human is the image of God. And killing a child in the womb is no different than pulling out a gun and shooting me right here in front of all of you. It's exactly the same sin. There is no distinction. So if you have never recognized, affirmed, or embraced this truth, I want to urge you to do so today. You may be sitting here and thinking, I've never really even thought about this. I want to urge you with everything in me, this is a clear moral demarcation line. So do I, do I respond to this by praying? Am I praying for this holocaust? And I'm using that word advisedly because it's the same arguments. I could have gone through and showed the Nazis do the same exact arguments we did for slavery that, and we do for abortion the Nazis did regarding the Jews because it's the same war. It's the same thing. Do I pray for this holocaust to end? Friends, be praying. Be praying that Roe versus Wade would be struck down. Be praying for a change in the hearts of our people. Am I willing to engage in uncomfortable conversations to proclaim the truth regarding abortion? Because if you get in this conversation, people are not going to be happy. I've had people scream at me, say nasty stuff to me, tell me I'm crazy, question all kinds of things. And you know what? I don't care. I don't care if I'm standing at the gate of Auschwitz and you're telling me I'm a wacko. No, I'm not. That's evil. That is murder. And if you are justifying this, you are justifying depravity and wickedness beyond my ability to describe it. And the same thing is true today. Are we willing to have those kind of conversations? And do I hold politicians accountable? I don't, politics is the very end of this. But make no mistake, we must hold them accountable that they must be pro-life. I can't say, you know, this guy's got good economic ideas and he's working in all this and he's restoring things in our culture. He just wants to kill a bunch of Jews because it was true of Hitler. 
economic miracle. Restored Germany. Just had a little thing about killing six million Jews and some gypsies and some other people. I don't care where else you stand or what else you stand on. If you are standing there slaughtering the unborn, you are not worthy of my support. This is a non-negotiable. And we need to be shouting and screaming regarding this issue. Friends, 50 million dead. More than all of our wars. More than all of every plague that has ever struck. In America, we've killed purposefully. Second part of being authentically pro-life. Do I recognize, affirm, and uphold in action the life, dignity, and rights of every human being? Not just the unborn. Every human being. Much of the political and cultural rhetoric right now is abhorrent and anti-life. And what I mean is, I can disagree with you without degrading or demeaning you as a human being. And if I do, I almost had James 3, 9, and 10 as part of the text today. If you degrade the image bearer of God, notice you're doing the same thing here. You're just not gutsy enough to actually do it physically. But verbally, I'm doing the same thing. And much of the conversation in our culture is anti-image of God. Because you can't speak about another human being that way. But it's how all of the discourse is going on. We may never, never ever refer to people as vermin. Or they're out there acting like animals. Or in any way speak something that reduces their dignity. No matter how much we disagree with them. We have to embrace one another. Now, racism has infected the DNA of our culture. It just has. It's been there. It's been in the air we breathe. So, some questions for us on this one. Have I asked God to expose any racism in my own heart, words, or actions? And again, don't think that because I'm a believer, this would not be a temptation. It's been beyond a temptation. The church actively supported this. Have I asked God to expose it in my heart? Because it's in our DNA as a culture. It's been here. We, we, no, nobody had really thought of breaking slavery down by the skin color until we did it. That was kind of our, that, that's our addition to this. Am I regularly praying for racism and its effects to be exposed and rooted out of our nation? We, we, are, we are increasingly dividing as a culture. Are we praying? Are we doing spiritual warfare, asking God to break this down? Am I proactively working to build relationships with people of different ethnic, socioeconomic, or political groups? See, one of the things we're doing is so often we're breaking down. One of the things I love in our congregation is we don't all look the same. We're, we're coming out of different socioeconomic groups. We got people here who speak different languages. We're from different ethnic backgrounds. Thanks be to God. This is what the church ought to be. Are we actively reaching out to do this? Because, friends, it's what's needed in our moment, in our day. When everyone else is wanting to go off into our own little tribes, all that ever ends up in is striking out at the image of God. When we break down, it ends up in tribal warfare, and the image of God ends up being spilled on the ground. Always. We do not want to go there as a culture. Are we participating against that? And do I hold politicians accountable that they must guard their words and never degrade other individuals or groups? Some of our politicians... The stuff that comes out of their mouth, or even worse, through their fingers. Oh, my Lord. Why are we speaking this way? Ask yourself when you hear these things, would I turn and say this to my child? I, I was earlier holding my little granddaughter, Lane. Would I look at her and say that? You vermin. You're an animal. 
I wouldn't say it to her, why, why would I say that about another image bearer of God? It doesn't matter if I disagree with them. Do we hold politicians accountable? Because right now they're running roughshod and saying crazy things. There's no lock on their lips at all. Now, what we're going to do, we're going to come down to the Lord's table. And I want to speak to us as we're doing this. Maybe you're here this morning and you've been involved in an abortion. If you're a woman, perhaps you've had one. If you're a man, perhaps you've encouraged or pressured a woman to have one. Maybe you've gone along and helped someone. Or maybe God is revealing racism in your heart. And you admit, I, I'm struggling with this. This thing's gone on in our culture, or this thing happened, or somebody did this. And I just have to admit, I, I see racism in my heart. Please, in either of those areas, don't go the way of Cain. We come to this table because, friends, we've all sinned. We have fallen short of the glory of God. And we come to this table for cleansing, and cleansing in two ways. Number one, to confess, oh, God, I'm guilty of, I have blood on my hands. I've been involved in an abortion. I, I've engendered racism. We confess it. And the penalty is forgiven. But secondly, there's cleansing and that I don't want to continue walking that way. I don't come to the table to confess abortion so I can go out and have another one. I don't come to the table to confess racism so I can go out and continue walking in that way. I come saying, oh Lord, not only forgive, but cleanse, purify, remove this from my I don't want to be at war against your image. So we're going to come this morning to do this. So if you can go ahead and get your packets. I'm going to begin with the word of invitation from 1 John chapter 2, since we're reading John normally this month. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for our sins, but also for the sins of the whole world. Brothers and sisters, I invite you to the table of cleansing and grace. For what I received from the Lord, I pass on to you that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it. He said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is poured out so that your sins may be forgiven. Drink from this, all of you, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Father, you are the creator of heaven and earth. And you made us in your image. But in the garden, we spurned this great privilege, and we have been spurning your image ever since. In our war against you, we have even rejected your son, breaking his body and taking his life. So today, Lord, we take this broken bread not as a symbol of our righteousness, but of our repentance and trust in our Lord Jesus Christ. We confess our sins to you 
and we look to you for mercy and forgiveness. Brothers and sisters, take and eat. Lord, if every sin deserves punishment, how much more serious is the sin of rejecting your image in our fellow humans, despising, demeaning, and even destroying them? For such sins, the penalty in your law was death. Yet you came, Jesus, willingly pouring out your blood to pay for our sin. And we thank you that your blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. For your blood speaks mercy. So Lord, today we take this cup, not as a sign of our righteousness, but of your mercy and of the cleansing power of the blood of Christ. We drink it in faith, professing that the blood of Christ cleanses from all unrighteousness now and eternally. Take and drink the cup of life. Let's stand together for a closing prayer and benediction. Holy Spirit, through your ministry and power, we have feasted upon the sacrament, freshly receiving forgiveness and feeding our souls. We now call upon you, Spirit of the living God, to purify us, not just from the penalty of our sin, but from its power. Lord, we long to walk in righteousness, fulfilling your will in thought, word, and deed. Empower us now, O Holy Spirit, and send us forth to be instruments of peace in a world of hate, vessels of mercy in a world of judgment, and channels of blessing in a world of cursing and bitterness. We ask this in the name of Christ, our Redeemer and our King. Amen. Now receive God's word of blessing. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. May God fill your hearts with joy and peace as you labor for him this week. Go forth blessed and be a blessing. Thank you for listening to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. For more teachings and resources, please visit www.brcc.church.